Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. With Christmas just around the corner, we begin an extremely important passage of Scripture where Paul outlines the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the context of his expectation for the church to pursue single-mindedness and an attitude of humility towards one another. Thanks for joining us today as we unpack the secret ingredient to harmony within the church called humility. What does your house look like? It's rhetorical, but what, what about when company's coming over? Has anyone had such a clean house as when company is coming over? My house never looked so good until Christmas time when we know folks are coming. I mean, I vacuumed the floor and then I vacuumed it again. I don't know why. Aren't we the type of people, though, that love to put our best foot forward, aren't we? Aren't we the type of people who spend time in front of the mirror to make sure things look right? Aren't we the type of people who make sure that when the guests are coming over to our house, everything is dusted and everything's in its proper place? You know, I hear from people that there's too much in Christmas that's fake. It's, it's not really an accurate representation of what our lives are really like. And that, unfortunately, has for many people polluted almost the whole season, in a way. Uh, My my family has um, a tradition of sending out uh, Christmas cards to uh, our family who live far away. And so Emily finds a picture that we have, and and uh, she she does all this, and many of you do the same thing, right? Um, When she showed me this card, though, I looked at it and I said, now that is fitting. It says, Messy Christmas. Isn't, isn't that true? Isn't that what it's supposed to be like? Uh, my, uh, my brother and sister are up visiting for Christmas, and that's why I'm vacuuming the floor twice, because you know, I'm trying to make everything look good. Uh, but sure enough, as it is normally, when I get my little nieces around with my two children, the house is in chaos. It looks like a bomb went off, and they're running around and chasing each other. At one point last night, actually, my daughter was on top of my head, banging at me like a drum. That's the crazy that goes on for Christmas. It's not Merry Christmas. What is it? It's Messy Christmas. And I don't know why, but I thought that as they were leaving, um, we give the children the tasks like normal that they need to clean up after themselves, clean up all the toys. And there happened to be this particular one green ball that my son wanted to put away, but my daughter really wanted to put away. And in the middle of that, I thought, you know, I'd like to take a family picture. And so I tried to do that. Um... (laughs) But as you can see, uh, Micah got the ball, and that's what we're left with. And I feel like it's a far more accurate representation for next year. That's what we're going to send out to everybody, right? Because it's true. What What if people knew the mess that your life really looked like? You know we are a mess. We're, we're constantly lying to ourselves. We're, we're trying to justify our sin or ignoring it completely. Kind of like a teenager who had basketball practice and just stinks. And everyone else can tell, but you know they can't. It's what our lives have become. Because we deceive ourselves. We're constantly jealous. Living in a world that's always prompting us to keep up with the Joneses. 
We use our means as a uh, way of keeping up with the marketing industry, comparing our possessions with our neighbors. We have sanctified coveting, really. Do you know that's happened in America? The Bible says thou shalt not, uh, but Amazon says they have a sale. (laughs) And so what we've done is we've really made this sin no longer a sin in our world. And that just means we're such a mess. We can have anything we want with just a few clicks of the mouse. We're self-lovers to a fault. We really are. In fact, even in our altruism, this is our our desire to serve others and help others. Now, I I know we'd raise our hands to say, yeah, I'd love to help others. But if it really pressed you too far, if it really cost you too much of your time, of your energy, of your effort, too much comfort and suddenly... You know, I'm busy and I got this appointment and we've got this happening with our kids. And we're far more concerned about ourselves because you know what? If we're honest, we're a mess. We're just an utter mess here. It's not going to help for us to lie about it to ourselves. And God did not leave us alone in our mess. I want to share with you this morning that there actually is an antidote. There's a medicine. There's something that the Bible gives as a singular word to the answer of our mess. It's the word humility. Humility. I've entitled this message this morning, The Humility of God's People. And we're going to keep marching forward in the book of Philippians. This morning we're going to be in chapter 2. And so I invite you to please turn there with me as we read through a short portion of of this particular chapter in Paul's letter. Uh, We're going to read through verses 1 through 5. As we do, what we're going to identify is that Paul here outlines a set of expectations for the church in light of all that God has done. So if you know Jesus Christ this morning, if that's you coming to church, I know Jesus Christ. I give my life to Him, not 90%, not 99%, How much of your life do you give to God? 100%. If that's you this morning, Paul's going to speak directly to you. And I believe that this is going to be a message for how you and I need to frame our actions, our behaviors, particularly within the church, but specifically at Christmas time as we seek to represent Jesus to the outside world. Page 1827 in our Pew Bibles. We'll, We'll read through a couple of verses, make some observations, and then we'll end our time this morning, God willing, with an application for how we can best represent him in this world. Paul writes this, chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, and your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And this is our passage this morning. Before we dive into it to make some observations, I first need to remind you of the context in which it is written. Where is Paul writing this from? Jail. He's in prison. 
And he has started out, as we've been over the last three weeks, writing to a church that he is not with physically, but he is with spiritually. He says, I thank God every time I remember you for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, the, the church and the, the first thing that we need to make sure that we recognize is that within the body of Christ, you are not alone. And whatever the potential sign outside says, your denominational distinctives, whatever that may be, the love of God far expands the unity of God's church outside of our distinctives, outside of our traditions. And we need to reframe how we think about that. And the challenge was that we need to look to care for one another, to pray for one another, just as the Apostle Paul does. And he moves a little further in chapter 1 to say, you're kind of thinking about what's happened to me all wrong. Because for the Philippians, to have bad things happen meant that God wasn't really there. And so Paul says these words. He says, what has happened to me, meaning thrown into the clink, what happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. You know God doesn't take a day off? Did you know that? God doesn't take a day off. Does it feel like he does sometimes? Anybody with me? Does it ever feel like he's not around? Does it ever feel like there's nobody got their hands on the wheel? He does. The sovereignty of God's love means that there's nothing that will happen to you in this life that hasn't happened under his divine purpose. The orchestration of his will unfolding. So Paul says to the church, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Now, he moves a little further to help them understand that even death itself cannot touch the Christian, which is about the best news there is. God didn't come to pay your taxes. God didn't come to heal your physical ailment. So money and health have not been promised to you from God's sovereign will. He, in fact, wanted to save you from something far worse. Death. That's what salvation means. So this life, you might have trouble. In fact, it's been promised by Jesus. But Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And to die is what? Is actually gain. I can only imagine how the Philippians felt as they read that passage, just thinking, man, I've never heard, I've never heard that way before. And, and it's not like we can pretend that he's lying. The man's in prison. He must mean what he says. So this is the same way we need to reframe our thinking. He moves on to the end of the chapter then as we, uh, I might just point you back to verse 29 of chapter 1. He says, For it's been granted unto you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And so suffering is a very real, it's a very real reality for us in this life. So what do you do with this? You place your hope where it truly belongs. If your conduct and mine needs to be determined by the gospel, such that we live not as those who pay attention to this world, but as those who hope for a greater world, how should we treat each other? Where where do we find the motivation for this sense of hope? And this is where Paul moves to in chapter 2. So so he's, he's reframing the way the church thinks. And so right now, as we, as, we, as we dive in, I want you to see, as I believe I've preached on this before, he lists four things that you have. And then he lists four things that God expects. So the first thing that he lists here is, in verse 1, encouragement from being united with Christ. I am almost confident we all underestimate this. 
It is not until your life gets significantly hard that you and I tend to rely on God. You know what I'm saying? Hey, when things are going good, how eager are you to be on your knees calling on God's name for help? Any? When things are good, things are good. It's when things get difficult that suddenly we find that there actually is somebody who has not left us and it's God Almighty by our side. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So this is a big one. I want you to know right off the, right off the bat, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that's the first thing. Second thing he mentions here is any comfort from his love. I was thankful for Don reading our New Testament reading this morning. First John 4, God is what? God is love. So if you have any comfort from his love, that's the second thing. Third thing, any fellowship with the what? What's it say? Verse, verse 1, fellowship with the Spirit. Um, it, it's an it's amazing thing as Jesus meets with his disciples. He says, it's better that I go because I'm going to send the comforter. And, and the disciples there who were with Jesus, they just can't conceive how that could possibly be better. But understand this, Jesus was limited in the scope of his influence by space and time. Not in his deity, because he's fully God, but he was also fully man. But the Spirit, the Spirit can do amazing things. Do you know that you can walk away from God, but God will not walk away from you? Has anyone ever experienced that in their life? Maybe a season or a time in your life, a dry spell, a time of discouragement, when you felt really alone? Hear me now, you were not alone. Fellowship means a togetherness, a unity that comes from the Spirit of God. And the Spirit that He has given to indwell us will never leave you. will always serve to be your teacher, to be your guide, to be the one who convicts you of sin, the one who draws you, the one who equips you for ministry, and the one who seals you for the day of Christ's return. Got any encouragement from that this morning? Anybody? Any encouragement from that? Yeah. So, unity with Christ, comfort from His love, fellowship with the Spirit, and number four, is tenderness and compassion. I hope you understand that that is indeed the way that God deals with you. Anyone ever have a boss that really loved to yell at you? Anybody have one of those that just put you in your place? Right. Yeah. Have you ever made a mistake with God? Anyone ever have that happen? Yeah. You kind of messed up in your life? Yeah. Hopefully his hand was heavy upon you, but it's always with tenderness. It's always with compassion. And God does not have to do that. You hear me this morning? He doesn't have to. He could come down upon us the way our sin and rebellion deserves, which with the might and the force of 10,000 angels to snuff us out of existence, to punish us with a wrathful vengeance that for God is not apart from his holiness. You heard the kids ring the bells, didn't you? God is holy, holy, holy. And what are we? Without God, completely separate from him. And yet, hear me now, he doesn't come to you with wrath. He's not like that vindictive boss. What does what verse 1 say? If any, tenderness and compassion. Anyone have encouragement from that this morning? All right, are you with me? Four things that are mentioned. Now there's four expectations that come from it. There's an if and there's a then. So if you find comfort and encouragement in any one of those four, look at verse 2. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. So if you have unity with Christ, we need to have unity with one another. 
It's as simple as that. If you have had your relationship with God in the, in the vertical made right, the expectation is, if God can do it for you, you can do it for who? The horizontal. You can do that with one another. We need an effort to be true to what we've received. We need to learn to be like-minded in how we think. And sometimes I want you to know this is true. Sometimes you can agree to disagree. Did you know that? You can agree to disagree. You don't have to be like, well, I ain't got a man. You man, you know, we don't have to get all bent out of shape. Sometimes we don't have to agree on everything. I wish I had more guitars. I wish the drums had six sets up here, right? Some people prefer just the organ. Now, who's right? <laughs> we can agree to disagree on something like that. There, there, there's an there's a entire list of things that you know what are left up to preference. And for these things, we need to be like-minded about something that's far greater. Which is, even if we don't see eye-to-eye on our opinions, we must see eye-to-eye on our Savior. And the love that He's shown us is so much greater than the love that's required from you and I to extend to each other. If God could do it for us, you can do it for each other. Amen? All right, that's the first one. So make my joy complete by, number one, being like-minded. The second thing that he mentioned was comfort from his love. I want you to notice in verse 2 now, it's having the same love. God's love for you. Uh, Does it ebb and flow? Does God turn his love off some days? Does God... (laughs) I won't get too personal. Is my wife here? Yeah, okay. I might skip this. Sometimes when things aren't going my way and I'm driving, I just won't look at her. That's not good. I need to repent of that. Does God do that? Is that how God's love, when God's not getting his way with you, is he like, I ain't, I ain't looking at him. Mm-mm. God doesn't treat us that way. God's love is called agape love. It's unconditional love. It's love that is predicated on what he has done, not what you and I do. This you and I are commanded to have the same love. I'm, is it in your Bible? Because I want you to say, I'm not making this up. This is what the Bible says. We need to have that same love for one another. You, you are going to offend each other. Amen? Amen. Yeah. You and I are going to have moments where uh, you say something you didn't mean. You hear something somebody said because someone told you they heard it said. And, and, and let's just stop doing that altogether to begin with, right? Because here's the deal. You and I will find little offenses. And if you're looking for it, I guarantee you're going to find it. That's not unconditional love. Pursue peace. Pursue reconciliation where there have been hurts. You and I must learn to have the same kind of love that God has for us. All right, number three, uh, being one in spirit. So if you, if you go back to verse one, he says, any fellowship with the spirit, now you and I need to be one in spirit. Uh, I got more to say in this message, so I'm not going to touch this too much heavier, other than to say this extends beyond our building. You, you, you need to look for opportunities to partner with other churches. You need to look for opportunities to find people from other denominations, other expressions of worship to God and say, you know what we need to be? We need to be of one, what? What did it say? One spirit. There's not a Grace Presbyterian spirit and then a Lutheran spirit and then a non-denominational spirit. There's one spirit. 
We need to be united under that one spirit. So I know you get this. All right? We need to see it inside the church. We also need to see it outside the church. And then lastly, he says you need to be one in purpose. And so if you have tenderness and compassion from God, the purpose of your expression of love to the world needs to come the same way. If I go out and find somebody who's living in sin, not interested in God. I actually spoke to a man this past week who, who said, yeah, I tried God when I was eight years old, but I, you know what? I'm, I found that the Christians who were telling me were hypocrites. That's what he said. They were liars. And so do you know what I did? I came to him and I took my Bible and I hit him right over the head. That's what I did. And he said, I'm a Christian. Does that work? No, God doesn't deal with you that way. We cannot deal with others that way as well. To be one in purpose means to follow after the same purpose of God's love for us. And God treated you with tenderness and with compassion. This is how we must deal with others. This is our purpose, to love people with tenderness, to love people with compassion. It's, it's filled. This book is filled with that message. We need to make sure that we understand it well enough to come to those who don't know him with the same patience that God had for you and for I. All right, so that gets us to verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Humility is the theme here. In fact, if you were to cheat and move down to verse 8, you'll find that as, as Paul begins to talk about Jesus here, he says in verse 8, he became in the appearance as a man, and he what? He humbled himself. I want you to understand, you can write in the top margin of your Bible, Philippians chapter 2, is all about humility. And so I, in the remainder of our time, I want to make sure that I outline for you where humility needs to be the posture of in our lives, okay? So number one, humility needs to be the posture of your head. What I mean by that is how you think, specifically how you think of yourself. I could could drone on for too long telling you about moments in my life that God has humbled me because I thought I was pretty awesome. And that is a dangerous way to live. Thinking highly of yourself will put you in a position to be knocked down a peg by God's tenderness and his compassion. Thanks be to God, he does not let us continue in our pride. So humility, just as you want to have proper posture, needs to be the right posture of how we think. I want you to, this would be good if you wrote this in your margin of your Bible or even turn there, but Romans chapter 12 has something to say about this. Paul writes these words, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. I do not deserve God's love. But he gave it to me anyhow. Do you know what that does to a person when they, when they consider that dual truth? God's love is given to you and I don't deserve it. It ought to humble us. And that's how I need to think of myself. As one who has received that which he doesn't deserve. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And so ask this question. How do I think of myself compared to others? Well, geez, I, at least I'm better than that guy. I'm not as bad as them. I mean, maybe he's not as good as I should be, but at least I'm not. You know, I'm so sick of hearing that. 
You and I are all the same under God. I don't care if your sin is big or little. I don't care if our world makes a big deal of or, or we've pacified it like coveting. We are all equally in need of the blood of Jesus Christ to cover our sins. Be very careful as to how you think with your head about yourself. For the correct posture of how you think is with humility. Number two is this. Humility ought to be the posture of your hands. He moves on a little bit further here in Philippians 2. In verse 4 he says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I won't name any names, but there was recently for me an encounter I had with somebody who was really down on their luck. And they're having a hard time. And I've known about this for a while. I've heard about it. But this was the first time I actually saw it with my own eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but I can really waste a Saturday taking care of my own interests. Anybody else? I I, I got a whole list of stuff. Things I need to do. Stuff I want to do, right? What's the Bible say? Don't look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Many many of you in here have been given uh, strong back, sound minds, uh, hands that can serve, feet that can serve, skills to give to one another. How are you using those? How are you using what God has given to you? Do you use it to just seek after your own interests? I got a lot of stuff to get done. I've been putting it off and putting it off. I want to tell you something. If you give to God, and I don't mean give to your neighbor because you feel guilty because pastor was making us feel so guilty. But if you were to go and serve your neighbor because of God and what he's done for you, that whole list of things that you want to spend your time doing, God's going to take care of all that stuff. Jesus says this. Why do you worry about tomorrow? Why do you worry about the things that you need to do? Instead, seek ye first what? His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added onto you stop looking at your list he's given you hands and feet humility is the posture that has us to serve others again in romans chapter 12 paul says these words we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. I wonder if you could just look at the verbs that he listed here. Every single one of those. Can you do those alone? Can't prophesy alone. Can't serve myself. Can't teach myself, encourage myself, give myself, lead myself, show mercy to myself. Every one of these has in mind someone else. The command found right in the very context of the passage that says, don't think highly of yourself, is followed by this. Use what God has given you to serve who? To serve not here, serve who? To serve others. So, humility needs to be the posture of our head, our hands. Ask this question, do I look out for the needs of my fellow Brothers and sisters, do I look out for the needs of my fellow brothers and sisters? Thirdly, humility needs to be the posture of my heart. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We didn't read it in 1 John, but John says these words, anyone who claims to know him must walk as Jesus did. How did Jesus walk? 
How did, how did Jesus think of himself? I, I, I'm going to turn again to Romans 12 because I just want to see the parallels between here. Paul says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I don't know if you knew that this morning coming to church, but you belong to the rest of us. This is what I like to tell people when they haven't been to church. They, they, first of all, to the pastor, they're constantly apologizing. I'm really sorry I haven't been there. My dog got sick. And I mean, you just hear all kinds of stuff. I'm not interested in any of that because what I believe is that you are being led by the Spirit of God. So I'm trusting God more than any of your excuse. But you know what I really want to communicate to you is that we miss you. You guys know what I mean? When you don't see people here in church, I hope that what you feel is not, well, those scoundrels are probably sleeping in. I would want you instead to say, geez, I really miss them. I really miss their smile. I really miss their handshake. I really miss whatever it is that makes them so special because you do not belong to you. You belong to us if this is true. And if this is true, then your heart's posture is one that doesn't think I belong to myself. Your heart's posture is also one of humility. If ever there was somebody who owned the right to say, you serve me, who was it? It was Jesus Christ. And yet I want you to look and see what Jesus says in Mark 10. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we wrap this up, I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. Hold your spot in Philippians, if you will. Turn to John chapter 13. If it is true that your attitude or your heart needs humility to be patterned after Christ, I want to give you the best story I know of to show you what that looks like. John chapter 13. Page 1673 in our pew Bibles. I ask you to follow along as I read the story. Verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Alright, you tracking with me? Whatever's going to happen next, John says, is the picture of the full extent of the love of Jesus. So here we go. Verse 2. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I just imagine Peter had really smelly feet. (laughs) There's actually more going on here than just smelly feet, though, because in this culture, washing the feet of your guests was the task given to the rookie servant. Whoever was the newest greenhorn on the payroll, hey, pal, it's your job to wash feet because ain't nobody wants to wash feet. Except here is the host of the meal. Here is the one who sits in the seat of honor 
now humbling himself, not to just the average of the servants, but the lowest, most menial, mundane task that the servants would do. Peter gets that. Peter understands that. Jesus replied, verse 7, You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Peter hears that, right? Unless you wash me, then you have no part with me. And so Peter's response is, check this out. Then, verse 9, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Peter, Peter wants, if, 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 to be washed by you means just all of me. I, all of me, Lord, if I want to be with you that much. I think in verse 10, John leaves out a sigh. I just believe Jesus went, you know, all right, here we go. Look at how Jesus answers in verse 10. A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Folks, we need humility in our heads, how we think, in our hands, how we serve, and in our hearts. They need to follow after the attitude of our Lord, our teacher, our Savior. Ask yourself this question. How often is my attitude like Jesus or patterned after this world? God helps those who help themselves. Do you know that's the biggest load of rubbish I ever heard? You could not help yourself. You were dead in your sins. But God gave compassion. God gave tenderness. Don't think like the world does. Shift your attitude to an attitude of humility to put ourselves down less and lift others up. So here's what I want to challenge you with. Here's what I'd like you to do with this. Again, I hear a lot of times people are sick of Christmas. It's fake happiness, fake presents, fake cards. It's all fake. There actually is a truth within Christmas that I want you to hold on to. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul is leaving the elders in Ephesus, he says these words, quoting Jesus, and everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of Jesus himself who said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You know, instead of sitting on Santa's lap asking for what you want, if this is true, it's more blessed to do what? To actually give. That word blessed is one you've got to pay attention to. Because happiness here is not the scope of God's desire in your life. Instead, it's his sanctification. Becoming like him. For God is, I said it before, holy, holy, holy. And so I would read this to say it is more fulfilling to give than it is to receive. Here's what I want to do with you. I want you to think of somebody that you 
maybe don't get along with. I saw a lot of light bulbs go on there real quick. You, you all got somebody. That was fast. Or, or maybe if you have a hard time thinking of somebody that you just don't really get along with too well, I want you to think of somebody who could never repay you for doing something nice for them. Somebody who, if you gave them something, they wouldn't be able to give you something back. I'm thinking of the weak here. Either somebody that you know I just kind of, like sandpaper, we just rub each other the wrong way, or somebody that you know of that has a need. And in your sermon notes, I put a blank there. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write their name in, whoever that is. I mean, unless you, you just came to church not to listen. But if you came to listen to Philippians, if you're listening to what Paul is saying here, he says, if you have comfort this way, if you have fellowship this way, tenderness and compassion, we need to have it this way as well. And it's easy to love those who love us. Am I right? Yeah. If people are nice to me, I can be nice to them. What about those who are a little sour? What about those who are a little, my, my wife says, uh, you, you have your prickers out, she said. Then. <laughs> prickers. They, they got these little uh, burrs where we served as missionaries that come and they, they stick to you and then they stick into your skin. And so sometimes when I'm a little less loving than I should, she'll say, put your prickers away because I've got these little thorns on me, like a porcupine. If there's anybody like that in your life that you know is just a little bit hard for me to love, Put their name here and say this to be true. They're better than me. Because that's what the Bible says. Think of others as better than myself. And then the challenge is, for in Jesus' name, I will... And you've got to fill in the blank here. I can't answer this one. That's my challenge to you, though. you got how many days before Christmas, folks? Yeah, you, that's plenty of time. All right? That's plenty of time for you to get busy at obeying this. Because I believe if you do, you'll be doing what the Apostle Paul had asked the church in Philippi to do. Paul was willing to suffer. Paul was willing to put up with those who were a little bit prickly and sour. And if you and I, as the church, much like in Philippi, would be of one mind, of the same spirit, of the same love, and one in purpose, we will be making Paul's joy complete You will be fulfilling what our candle this morning is lit for. For whoever says that he loves God, but he doesn't love his brother, is a liar. For who can love God who they have not seen when they don't love their brother whom they have seen? Do you pray with me this morning?